Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This episode is a bit different on the Australian Investors Podcast. I'm joined by certified financial planners, Jamie Nemsis and Drew Meredith, my partners in crime from Model Partners. This episode is different because what we're actually doing is walking through the traditional process of seeing a financial planner like Jamie or like Drew and the types of questions and strategies they would recommend to clients. I've given them a completely fictional a couple, Craig and Fiona, who are looking to get financial advice around the age of retirement. This is an interesting conversation because it's not just for people in or near retirement. Jamie and Drew touch on many important aspects of building a portfolio that's resilient for the long term, what happens and how to manage when interest rates um, can no longer fall any further and may actually increase, how to allocate portfolios whether the guys think investment properties are a good source of yield, and so many other conversations and threads that we pull on throughout this discussion. I've chatted to both Jamie and Drew in the past. One of our most popular episodes of all time was our Portfolio Construction Essentials episode, so I encourage you to go back and listen to that. What I'd encourage you to do before you continue on and listen to this episode is actually read the show notes. I've included the situation of Fiona and Craig, this fictitious couple, so you can get an understanding of what their situation is and how good financial planners go about thinking about a situation like that and the questions and answers they might have for clients in that situation. So it's a really interesting conversation more broadly on not only investing, but asset allocation, portfolio management, and basically managing your finances for the future. Here's Jamie Nemsis and Drew Meredith of Waddle Partners. Jamie Nemsis and Drew Meredith from Waddle Partners. How are you guys going? Yeah, good. Great. Mate, good to see you again. Yeah, last time, um, last time we caught up, Jamie, you said, "Lucky this this uh, podcast is not recorded in video," but now it is. So here we are. <laughs> That's why I've got yeah. this beautiful filter. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't made for video. So. Uh, no, mate, you're being too modest. Okay, so this this episode comes on the back of a really really popular first episode that we did around portfolio construction essentials. So if you're new to Jamie and Drew. Um, we've done lots of episodes together in the past, but the one in the past that's specific for this one was Portfolio Construction Essentials, where we talk about SAA, Strategic Asset Allocation, TAA, Tactical Asset Allocation, basically everything that falls in around that. In this one, this is a really, really interesting one because you guys actually just both both helped out my in-laws with their kind of pre-retirement slash going into retirement planning and and did them an SOA, which I was really impressed with. So. I'm hoping that we can do a, another example, but we'll just pick like a kind of fictitious person or couple with a, a situation. And then I'm just going to prompt you guys, but I hope you guys can go back and forth a bit as we go through. So maybe I'll just dive straight into the, the background on this, this couple. Um, so the couple um, is, uh, start with the male. We've got, 
we've got Craig, he's 62. He earns $125,000 a year as a mechanical engineer. So on PAYG. He's got 850K in super and he's maximizing the super guarantee. He has a balance strategy and pays around five and a half grand insurance, which I think is pretty common. Um, and his super fund has returned 6.6% per annum over the past 10 years. Fiona is 55, so she's a bit younger, seven years younger. She's a BDM for a technology company earning 110K plus 10K in bonuses. And she's also on PAYG. She's got a hefty 670K in super, balance strategy, three and a half grand in insurance every year. Um, and her fund has returned 5.4%. Now, I'll just give you some other stuff around the situation. Um, if you can't keep up, no worries. I'll put this all in the show notes so you can actually just have the, the, the situation in front of you as the guys riff on it. But um, so they've got 100K left on their mortgage and the house is worth about 880. Two adult aged children who are self-sufficient both believe they are high-risk investors, but Craig is more so conservative and he's interested in replacing his income with defensive options. The fees on their super funds are estimated to be 1.2% per year. They have 450K in managed funds, 300K in cash. So they're pretty, they've, they've saved pretty hard. They estimate they want $80,000 a year to live comfortably. So that's like a key thing for them is 80 grand a year. Uh, Craig's Super insurance covers him for 190K, that's life and TPD. And his income protection is only four grand a month. Fiona's super insurance um, covers her for 260 life and TPD and $3,000 per month income protection. Finally, we'll get to the goals. So the goals, they both want to re retire in the next three to five years and get advice from the two of you on things like these. They want to be debt-free before retirement. So should they use their cash to pay down any debt? Craig is thinking of buying an investment property for the yield just before retirement so he can cash kind of have that as a, an asset that pays income. They want to build an investment portfolio capable of helping them live sustainably, but they don't know if their super fees and strategy are right. They want to have cash to feel secure so that they can maintain a decent buffer. They'd rather be hands-off investors. So just leave it to guys like yourselves to pick managed funds or EDFs and, and manage the super for them. And importantly, they don't want to leave anything to their kids. So... <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, um, okay, cool. Maybe, maybe I'll start with you, Jamie, then. How, how does, if someone, so this is the situation. We've got Craig and Fiona. They know that they've saved hard, but now they need to get smarter because they're coming into retirement. How does the financial planning process work at Wattle Partners? Yeah, I think it... Um... Waddle Partners, it's uh, very similar to every other financial planning firm. Uh, we, we, of course, start with something like this. So um, we ask the client, every other firm will be the same. They ask the client to fill in a fact find. So a fact find will be all the detail that um, you've got here plus more. Um, so the, the, the first conversation can be relevant um, to them. They also we ask them to fill in a risk profile. So again, the whole industry does this, fact find, do you understand the client? Do you understand the situation? And then risk profile. So they're typically two documents that are completed before a client would see an advisor. Um, and it helps the advisor understand what they're looking for and how they potentially can be helped. Of course, it's just documents, right? Um, so it's nothing about the, the, the nuances or the emotional elements of it or how a client feels. So it's, but, that, but it essentially starts at those two. Uh, client will call up 
we'll send out the documents, documents will be completed, and then the client will typically meet. At the moment, it's over Zoom, but normally face-to-face -to, -face to talk about these issues and how potentially an advisor can help. Part of that questionnaire is also getting a, an idea of how they feel about different parts of the situation. So it, it is mainly factual, but how do you feel about your <clears throat> debt position? Do you think you have enough for retirement? And kind of getting the emotion in there as much as you can before you before you meet, because a lot of it is the mental challenge of getting to retirement less so than financial. Mm -hmm. Is this process, this first process, is this free? If, if they called you and say, hey, I'm interested in becoming a client, what's my first step? Is this free, this first step? Yeah, each, each advisor typically has their, um, their client base that they're looking after. So, you know, Drew and I are experts in pre and post retirement. So, you know, the majority of our clients come in at age 50 plus and we help them for the whole of their retirement. If you have a, if a client came to us and they'll, you know, 25, we would probably struggle. Um, just the way that our business is structured, the way that our expertise sits in, in, in advice. So in that case, we would either refer them on to another advisor that was more appropriate um, or just tell them that we couldn't help them. But if it's essentially somewhere, and we make sure that we communicate um, what we are good at and what kind of clients we can help. So generally looking at initial chat, no cost, then we'd send the questionnaire to set up and then set up a, you know, it used to be an in-person meeting, but now it's Zoom or Teams. And with the questionnaire, you can be armed for that conversation. You can, we'd have 30 questions like what we've got for this. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, treated as if it was a client meeting, got 30 questions that we think need clarification before moving any further. Okay. What, what, what are some of the questions that you would ask? Everything. So experience, investing, I mean, some specific ones. The, immediately I looked at this, you said they, they needed 80,000 in income. Be interesting to know how much they're saving at the moment. Is this, where does this 80,000 come from? Has it come from a newspaper article? You know, if they're spending 150 now, if they, they're earning 275 and they're, they're um, not saving anything now, well, how are they going to live off change 80. that yeah, when they retire? So is, is, that common? Yeah. is that very, very common, common that you think? Yeah. Yeah, and it's always sometimes hard. No, no one runs a real budget, so it's quite hard to understand. Are you actually saving money at the moment, and whether you the eighty you've said is is achievable? And in, um, in is that as a, we do like, it so often, uh, mm -hmm. Owen, you, you always you know the initial fact finder Drew and I will look through it, and there's always things that um, are brought up that you go, well, I'm not sure that they've actually answered that. You know, and, and, and it's a hot spot within the questionnaire. So, you know, they say they're a high risk investor. We, you know, we've been through this concept that high risk investors, once they go through the traditional risk um, profiling, and you know, typically it's a male thing that they come through and say, we're high risk investors. Well, when you start talking about the characteristics or hold their hands through a correction that might last three or four years and the capital, what we deal with is every cent that people have saved through their whole life, right? It's every cent and typically they've ended their, their ability to earn any more. So you've got a finite piece of capital that you've got to live on until you pass away. Now that, mm. if you think about the emotions attached with that, it's totally different than say us three and we can be high risk investors because we're getting paid every other week. So then, you know, the high risk concept when portfolios fall, 25% as portfolios do, how do they act? You know, that's really, really important for us to, to assess early. Um, 
and understand why they think they're a high risk investor. The other kind of thing I picked out out of yours was the profession. So one of them is an engineer. We've got a lot of, I won't overlook general, generalize, but an engineer and then a kind of more sales person experience there. So you typically think the sales person would have a more aggressive, you know, having worked on a bonus structure or, or, or you know, things of that nature. Whereas an engineer in our experience tends to, tends to suggest things, you know, one plus one equals two, which we know in markets, you know, it, it doesn't, if that's oversimplifying, but uh, engineers in our experience tend to be more conservative in, mm. in general, I think. Well, this is a bit, it's a bit of an art rather than a science, right? So with an engineer or architect mindset, they're looking for a formula. And mm. sometimes it's really hard, even though that we're in finance, which so you'd think a formula would work, it's strategizing about the rest of your retirement and how assets should be held is an art, you know, and we've kind of perfected that art. Sometimes it's hard to communicate to people that are looking for a, you know, a formula. Mm. Just, just circling back to that 80K, when people come to you, is they're thinking in a couple, is that, I, I just guess, I just put that number out there, to be honest. I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. And um, does that sound like something people would come to you with? Or do they often say a lot more or less? Or where does that normally land? I think it's probably sitting about the average that we see okay. of, of what people think they need. Um, and I think it does fit most. You know, I mean, this environment, you're probably spending far less. Um, and then you consider if it's in superannuation, it'll be tax-free. So you have to have that conversation as well, where they're talking about 80,000, is that before or after tax? Because you're used to paying tax on all your income. Um, but I think it sits around normal. What do they say? The, the stats say that something like 58,000 a year is a comfortable retirement for a couple. Um, in our experience, and probably the people we work with is more like 80, but then it, it depends on the stage of your retirement as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. And the pattern of income through retirement changes as well. You know, we always say that typically a couple like Greg and Fiona will retire probably when Greg is, you know, 65, 66. Um, she'll be, you know, early 60s. And they'll probably do a lot of things. So, you know, maybe it's 80 to pay for the bread and milk and the expenses, but they'll probably renovate the house. They'll probably buy a caravan, go around Australia. They'll probably go for one or two overseas trips. They'll probably help their children into housing. They'll probably, so, you know, what is the baseline? And what we typically notice is for the first 10 years of retirement, it's 80 plus capital, right? Capital for travel, capital for cars, capital. And then it drops right back. So sometimes... Sometime in your 70s, what we've noticed, what I've noticed, I'll talk for me, not, not, not through, but what I've noticed is clients get old um, and it doesn't necessarily <laughs> start at retirement. It's, you see a client, we see clients on a regular basis. So they'll be one quarter and I'll be fine next quarter. They'll come in and you notice that they're now old, right? Mm -hmm. And typically yeah. then spending drops and it drops substantially because all those capital costs for 10 years and then they start having... Um, and this is, you know, what we specialize in one partner will pass away and then there'll potentially be a change of house and then potentially it'll be, you know, uh, aged care involved. So then income again, changes substantially income and capital needs changes substantially in your eighties. So it's, you see lovely charts all the time in financial plans that yeah. have, here's your income and it, you know, it's got this nice type of flow to it. That's not reality. I don't think it's reality to what we we see. And I tend to agree with you there. I see those charts and I'm like, that's pretty, uh, like, 
pretty unpredictable when you start getting health things, travel, a lot of those things aren't captured in those models, right? So what are some of the, so just on that life cycle before we get to some specific areas, um, what are some of the things that people do wrong at this time? Like when they transition to retirement, what, where are they stuffing up here? The biggest mistake in port in, from a client's perspective that we've seen over 20 years is not understanding their tolerance to risk or loss and making substantial changes in crisis. We saw it last year. We saw it 10 years ago. We see it every time. It doesn't matter when people, and that that's why, you know, we kind of specialize in this uh, and specialize in holding people's hands really tight in this period. When you, when you are retired, you have a finite, you know, piece of capital and you see it fall. Emotionally, it doesn't matter who you are. Emotionally, it's really, really hard, right? You can lose a, a year of salary in, you know, a minute on the market. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's right. So these people, for example, um, they're going to have 200, say roughly two and a half million dollars, maybe a little bit more by the time they retire. Markets could fall 10%, uh, official correction, and they could lose 10% at $250,000. And, you know, their, their salary together is $250,000. So when people start putting these numbers together, mm. it, it, it's the biggest problem. And it's not a problem just in our, with our clients. It's a problem with all, everyone from an investor's perspective. You look at switches at industry funds, they peak at the bottom. Right. They typically peak at the top where people then see the returns that they've provided, you know, 20 plus returns in Aussie Super. Um, You can see it. Like last year, Aussie Super didn't do that well. Um, So you're probably switching out for a safer option. So you've gone from growth to conservative. This year, you've got your statement that says 21% and you're in a conservative option that said three or four. So now you're probably going to switch to Australian Super without thinking about it you're going to think about going to the balanced option in Australian super from the conservative option. It's just intuitive. It makes kind of sense, but that's, that's the biggest problem, you know, um, the big that I see. issue. Yeah. The one I see is probably <clears throat> where SMSFs are quite unique around the world. So a lot of people end up starting their own SMSF, taking control of their investments, but they tend to be solely focused on income. You'd see it with a lot of, mm. a lot of the people yeah. you, you interview as well like all that matters is income, but we know, you know, history has shown companies that just pay out all their dividends, like anything, they don't grow. They basically go, go nowhere and your, your income is eaten up by capital loss effectively. So I think the risk that they, and that fits with Jamie's what, what, um, what their tolerance is to risk. A lot of people take more risk than they actually realize and, and only look at the income that's being produced by their portfolio. Cause I think that's the only thing they can, they can, uh, pay the bills with mm. um i think education is, is a key i mean what what your whole business is about owen is empowering people through knowledge and education so a lot of people don't have the knowledge and education to essentially manage their portfolio or even emotionally know how to respond to it um and when you couple <clears throat> you're 65 and there's a great transition at at retirement from being really let's take um you know a lot of our clients are senior execs really important people they have pas they have a whole team looking after them they're retired there's great fanfare they go home and 
they're not important anymore, right? So then they, what do they do? Um, and a lot of them start trying to get involved in their investment portfolio and try to learn more. But if you haven't learned over a longer period of time, it's a really hard thing to learn and invest when, again, you've got this finite piece of capital that you're trying to live off. You know, how do you, yeah. how do you learn at that age? And the emotional effects of making wrong decisions totally affect, you know, the way you see things. So we see a lot of people try to learn a lot more. Um, but, you know, I think in, in a lot of cases, it's too late. I've heard of a lot of stories of people transitioning to retirement and have the SMSF for three years and then they they forget it. Like they just, it's so like they lose interest or they get, they get shook out of it, like you're saying. Uh, and that leaves them in a worse situation than what they would have if they just took the advice and just kind of stayed away from it. Um, can I just jump into some of the key points here? One of the, the goals was that, um, well, not a goal necessarily, but they're not sure if they, they if Craig and Fiona need insurance. So, you know, uh, I think I've got in here, uh, Fiona's insur insurance inside super covers her for 260K for life and um, TPD and income protection of three grand. Um, Craig's is for 190 of life and TPD and four grand a, uh, a month if he draws on income protection. Um, what are some of the factors that they should be considering when they think about their insurance needs? I think the, I mean, the main reason you have insurance <clears throat> during you, your life is to pay one to pay off debt and to make sure your family isn't impacted. Um, you know, if you're raising children or if you've got a mortgage, if, if you were to pass away and you can't earn an income, you're not providing an income, you want your family to continue as you, as they were as much as possible. Um, so I think, do you have any debt? Do you have any ongoing expenses that can't be covered by other assets? They're probably the two most important things, Jamie. Yeah, I think, you know, we, again, as a firm that specialises in retirement, typically cancel more insurance policies than we ever write. Um, and the, the, this couple, um, if you look at their net assets, take away their minor debt, if one of them was to pass away, they would have enough assets. If, you know, if one of them was to become incapacitated, they've got enough assets. So then we would suggest, and you know, your numbers here, we've seen, we've seen a lot worse where <clears throat> people are trying to save for their retirement, but insurance premiums are more than the money they save every year. So they're actually effectively going backwards by paying for a contingency of what if. So sometimes you've got to evaluate that. Um, Part of that yeah. question is, do you have enough to retire at the moment? So it's almost yeah. the chicken before the egg. If you've got enough, why would you ever insure yourself if you if you're already if you're already ready? So generally, Australia's overinsured, right? So we would take the view, and doing this for a long time. Um, I'm a bit older than Drew. I'd probably say long those time. with insurance are overinsured, <laughs> but there's heaps of people that are underinsured. Sure. <laughs> but you know we don't see them every day right yeah. we our clients are typically like this they'll come to us to have insurance policy it's been in place for 10 or 15 years it's a stepped insurance premium eg it goes up every year they haven't reviewed it you know the these people for example in my opinion wouldn't need any insurance i would cancel all of it um and i would put it towards building a bigger portfolio over the next five years you know if you take the premiums and invest uh, i think it's a better outcome it's not necessarily the word self-insurer. It's not really self-insurer. They've got sufficient assets to cater for it. 
The other point I want to make is in what happens after death. And I've seen it a lot with clients where one, it's not a linear, it's not another linear example. You know, people go, okay, will I have enough money living in the same house in the same way in the same environment? And I won't repartner. And, you know, that is rarely the case post-death of a partner. You know, within three years, typically people have changed their housing, potentially repartnered, and the situation again isn't linear. So what are you designing, you know, and how much insurance do you actually need? Um, and that's a really important thing that we participate into, you know, post that death of a partner, reevaluating all your options and what you're spending on housing and, you know, what does your portfolio look like? Do, do, do you have any strategies with that? Like, can you anticipate any of that? Like, or is it more so just being, yeah. like, when, having like a sound position? Again, when we do insurance assessment, um, there's lots of straight line formulas that would do insurance assessment based on that, right? But it's realistically, um, if if your advisor is good, the advisor will think about, well, what ifs? What if, you know, um, do I need to make sure that you have a house, a holiday house and a country house um, once if your partner dies and should I cover all that? I mean, a good advisor will go through the what ifs and think about what is an appropriate level of insurance you know, especially in their 40s and 50s. Um, and I think that's, you know, the value of a really good advisor is that they can they can think about the alternatives. Okay. Um, one of the things that, that Craig wants to do is kind of focus on that, that income piece um, in retirement. So again, that the 80K is kind of their ideal, but he's you know, heard in the grapevine, probably read it in the AFR or something about, you know, investment property and whatever. He's thinking of buying a residential investment property for yield. Where they are right now, do you think that is a good idea, basically? It's, I mean, it's a, a difficult question, isn't it? You look out, look out the door and residential property is going crazy. Um, but in, you know, in our experience, what's the after cost yield? It's usually about 2 to 3%. Um, which people yeah, right. kind of kind of forget about. So if you, I mean, going back to the part before is you don't want to invest solely for yield. So it's important to separate the kind of investment consideration into what total return do you expect from that asset? Um, <clears throat> we obviously have some bias because we, we, we don't advise on residential property. We advise on building diversified portfolios and multiple asset classes. Um, Personally, in our experience with, as a comparison to a two to 3% from a residential property point of view, a balanced portfolio can easily generate a, an income of four to 5% across multiple asset classes uh, without some of the holding costs, without some of the same you know, risks like stamp duty, tenants, repairs, all those sort of um, those issues. I mean, I personally prefer equities because I can sell them and buy little bits of little different businesses and all those things will work differently depending on the, the economic environment. Um, Jamie probably shares the same view. Yeah. I, th I think of the driver. So back to, you know, Craig and Fiona, they've chosen to retire. They've got a, a they've got a good nest egg, but they've chosen to retire in an incredibly hard period of time for the next 30 years to manage the capital rates have fallen for 30 years and any asset that has been valued off rates has gone up. Real estate's one of them. They've, you know, 
shares is probably another. So anything that's that, that gets valued off a risk-free rate has gone up in value over 30 years. Now, if we've got a finite pool of capital and we're trying to manage that over next 30, we would have to put some assumption that rates are going to go up at some point. I disagree with that. At best, sideways. <laughs> um, let's let's build Drew's view that it goes sideways. The risk is up, right? So probably yeah, firm's view is it goes sideways, but the risk is up. So what In happens? In a 30-year retirement, yeah. What happens if rates go up, then assets go down um, that are priced off the risk-free rate. That's as simple as economics is. So that would mean, okay, how much do you want in that asset class, particular asset, and uh, and, and what potential uh, hedges can you get against um, rates going up? So what kind of inflation hedges can you get? So um, what are they? Are there any? Oh, you know, if you had commercial uh, lease, so typically residential in Australia, unlike the rest of the world, is a short-term lease, six months or 12 months. So therefore very hard to hedge against um, inflation. So if you've got a commercial lease, a five to seven year commercial lease, typically you have an inflation um, hedge in that. Um, the the thing that- assets, commercial property, uh, Companies generally, companies that can part. You know, you you probably discussed them many times. Companies that can pass on costs to consumers. So, all this these is things, inflation hedges, yeah, yeah, for inflation hedges. Timberland, uh, gold, they're all decent hedges. Crypto, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, still. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so again, it's hard, right? Um, residential. Yeah. What, what is really important, what we're trying to get people to think about is what drove returns over the last 30 years, what will drive returns over the next 30, and don't get caught. Just don't, you know, rates, the risk is rates go up. Now, maybe our thesis is to go sideways, but if they go up, asset prices will go down um, without any, you know, any issue at all. It reduces reduces your flexibility too is what we see. So if they've got 2.2 in investable assets, they're probably going to spend 800 or so at least on uh, an investment property, if not more, which means, you know, it's at a third, over a third of your asset base goes into a single illiquid asset, um, which makes sense. You know, some people might be comfortable with that, but um, I think it doesn't give you much flexibility if you want to, buy a holiday house if you want to change change plans or yeah, really you're just stuck in this one, you know, most most of the time, particularly at the moment, most of the returns from property come from capital gains. As Jamie was saying, if interest rates are higher, then your holding period just has to be longer um, for a property, which... What we've found is a lot of people have hold a lot of property in the accumulation stage, right? And they yeah. have two or three typically because they are really comfortable holding large amounts of debt against it. You know, people will go and buy 10% equity, 90% debt and feel really comfortable about that asset. If you think about it, it's crazy. Um, But they'll feel really comfortable about it and then buy a second one and a third one. And then they've got great exposure to a growth asset. Then interest rates fall off. So they make money, but it's a lot of work, you know, agents, um, tenants, repairs, taxes, income, and what we find generally without us even influencing the decision, a lot of people get tired of it, right? They want a retirement that is a lot 
uh, hassle-free, you know, and there's great, even if you want real estate, um, there's great options to go into real estate um, through pooled funds or listed versions or syndicates. And there's some great providers out there that give you the some of the elements that you want in real estate without all the work, you know, professional management mm. over, a, over a good asset. Mm. Yeah, because um, my question to Jamie, because you mentioned before about commercial leases, we actually had um, Andrew Swartz from Qualitas on the show not long ago and has taken us through that. And I was surprised by how low duration those leases were, but also how consistent the year was. Because I think a lot of people like a, a property too, because the rent should be at least every single month. Like it's, you know, it's predictable. I think that's what people value as well. Can you still get that from, you know, by, by not having a property? Mm, sure. Um, you know, the just a plain ASX listed company will will have two dividends per year. Um, a lot of the property syndications will pay out monthly or quarterly. Um, so we're, we're not necessarily in portfolio design part of this yet, but you know, one of the things is why do you want regular income? Um, why do you need it monthly? You're probably not going to live you know, hand to mouth in retirement, there's going to be some kind of pool of capital there. Um, and we, and that pool of capital we use for a number of different things. Um, and one of them is to make sure the client always feels really safe so they don't make those knee-jerk reactions when markets fall. So how many times your annual income do you want in assets that won't fluctuate with the market? Um, so then you're not saying, oh, okay, this month I've got a pension. You know, that's not necessarily how we approach it. We would approach it somewhere between two and five years of uh, assets sitting in non-market linked assets, um, you know, term deposits and fixed income. Uh, so the client feels comfortable rather than trying to comfort the client by this, making sure the dividend is paid. Um, I think it's just educating that total return. So we had a perfect example of last year. We just reported quarterly, which in our quarterly reviews, we showed people what their income was, what their franken credits were, what their total return was. Last year, income their income fell by something like 40 or 50%. You know, you only had to look at all the dividend cuts last year, but your total return was on average, you know, 17 or 18%. Do you really, does it really matter if you only got one or 2% income last year when you've got a, portfolio that's worth 16% more and you can easily manage that into cash flow rather than solely relying on the dividends and, and payments coming in. So it's big education mm. process. So it's what we do every day. Mm, for sure. And okay. Let's, Drew, oh, Drew kind of highlighted it before. There's been lots of mistakes in retirement where people have seen, say if the total return uh, equation of your portfolio is total return equals income plus growth. Uh, a lot of um, DOI investors have really chased the income. Mm. So once you chase the income over what is normal, 70% of the time or 80% of the time, there'll be something fundamentally flawed with that investment that's not being seen. Financially engineered or a deep value investment that just gets deeper value over time or you know they're in the wrong industry or technology has disrupted them. Typically, you know, and you've talked about this a bit, Owen, about, you know, value traps and income traps, but typically there's, you know, 70% of the time, there's something that mm. hurts the investment. Now, what happens is the capital then falls off, right? So you invest in into it for a seven or eight or 9% return, 
and it's one of those 70%, and what happens is the capital falls off by 50%. So does it really matter you got seven or eight percent for four years and then your capital was halved? Not really. I mean, you'd rather investment that was still the same paying three or four percent. So so there's a good chart that someone did of um, CSL versus Te- Tel- uh, Telstra, not Tesla. That'd be a good one. Uh, which compared, you know, CSL that reinvests something like, I think it was a billion dollars a year into R&D versus Telstra that pays out 98% of earnings as dividends. Um, you chart them over the last 10 years and everyone knows what, what, what it looks like. You know, you've compounded mm. 10, 15, 20 times in CSL and Telstra is still below where it was 15 years ago. Um, and it just... Yeah, just investing for income doesn't necessarily result in the, the best outcome. So it's a balance, right? So income yeah. plus growth, balance it up. We like Telstra and CSL, so <laughs> we hold both. <laughs> okay, so let's move into the investing component specifically then. Um, just want to circle back to something just at the top. We talked about risk profiles and uh, Craig was probably more slightly more conservative, although they kind of both identified as high risk investors in their mind. Um, what goes into that, I guess, that calculation specifically? And, and you said, Jamie, that the males often tend to be high growth coming in and then they do the, the profile and may not be the case. I'd say most people who do our questionnaire, very few actually come out as a very high risk as well. Um, they're all very close to the same sort of risk level. You know, it's like you, you, the questions are like comparing yourself to others in terms of risk taking. So, um, yeah, I think it's much more, everyone seems to have a similar similar view on how much risk they're willing to take. Maybe that's just because we're working with retirees and, and they kind of see how important their capital is. Mm. Mm. Okay then. Um, in terms of their super, super funds, which is a major portion of where they've got their capital tied up and they will have for a long time. Um, and I know this because I read one of your SOAs recently. What are some of the strategies that, the two could use to boost their super balance. Want me to take this one? <laughs> yeah, go sure. And there's first thing I'd say is super, regardless of what comes out on the on the budget every year and all the you know political and media noise. Super is by far the best entity structure to put put your retirement assets in. Um, how much you contribute if you're younger is a different story, but when you're this close to retirement. Ultimately, you can draw a tax-free pension uh, once you retire and and the fund itself actually doesn't pay any tax within it. So in our view, it should make up the majority of your assets in retirement. Um, there's two main ways that, that you can get money into super. So non-concessional contributions after tax, which are after tax, you know, from your offset account or from your investment portfolio. Um, they've just increased slightly to 110000 a year as of last year um, but you are restricted from making them once your balance reaches 1.6 million per person and they're always per person there's always there's always some confusion about is that contributions as a family um, and the other option is concessional contributions which are your super guarantee uh, as you kind of alluded to in there I think one person was using them all up that's 27500 per year um, they're Part of majority of that comes from your super guarantee that's deducted depending on um, who you work for, if you're self-employed uh, and you can actually top them up each year up to that 27,500 uh, as well and claim a tax deduction. Okay. There's, um, I think you kind sorry, of alluded to, sorry, co-contributions, spouse contributions. I think in this case, their income 
precludes them from accessing those. Uh, but for those with lower taxable incomes, I think it's under something like 75K, you can put in $1,000 and the government will pay an extra $1,000 into your super fund, which, you know, what do they say? It's 100% return, free money. So <laughs> if you can get that, it's worth getting it. Um, and then spouse contributions are, you know, $500 offsets for $3,000 contributions, but also tested against your salary. So in this case, they wouldn't think unlikely mm. to be able to access those. Yeah. So maximizing, reduce the insurance premiums, maximizing mm -hmm. the, you know, the before tax contributions for both of them. Mm -hmm. um, one thing you, well, probably one thing you can do is actually transfer your existing investments if you are running a SMSF or multiple different types of platform super funds. You can actually transfer your existing investment portfolio as a contribution in a lot of cases. Um, obviously capital gains when you're selling those assets, but another way to get more money into super. Mm. So it's taking their managed funds and their shares, and putting it into their superannuation fund. Yeah. Um, so that we've already covered this, but they shouldn't, you would advise this couple not to take an SMSF. They did say they want to be kind of hands-free or hands-off, so. Uh, I, I think that would be you know, determined once we sat down and talked talked it through um, and it depends <clears throat> there's lots of options self-managed super funds is just a vehicle it doesn't necessarily mean it's always self-managed um, so majority of our clients have self-managed super funds and we do the management for them the way we service our clients is that we do quarterly reporting um, so them as trustees would receive our reporting and our recommendations and it's non-discretionary so they sign it and send it back if they or they have a meeting with us to talk about various things the benefit of that type of model and lots of advisors have got different models is that sometimes clients want to be really involved in the process you know, and especially in um, when markets fall a long way, they want to be in the process. And then sometimes, you know, they want to holiday in Italy for four months and they don't want to be involved, right? So if you've got a process where with your advisors where you can be involved or you can back out and not be involved, but you still know that there's a, you know, there's a real system and a framework being executed, then that... Um, that that works for self-managed super funds now so we're, we've got a bias towards self-managed super funds we like the structure we like pulling everyone's investments together we've we, we like have it holding a combination direct and managed um and direct investments um but uh you know there's lots of options there's a, a somewhere in between an industry fund and a and a uh, self-managed super fund called a wrap account and you know the, the wrap account fees used to be really high but they're falling quite quickly so potentially it's a or it's called an investor directed portfolio service so that's another mechanism that we use for advisors to for clients so they feel like that they've got control um, and that they've got transparency but someone else is doing the administration and the, and the reporting so um, big part so this is where in the initial meeting, we discuss these and try to find out what their priority is. Uh, is it is it about keeping costs low? Um, you know, the SMSF Association put out a paper that said a balance is above five hundred thousand dollars in super. You're typically going to be cheaper in an SMSF, depending on how you invest. After that, as a separate decision. Um, 
but it, it's what do you prioritize? Are you just prioritizing cost? Do you want some control? And do you want to have any time involved? So a two-way discussion. And then the outcome of these meetings is a statement of advice where we actually compare what we're recommending and the alternatives to that, uh, including what the costs are. So you get an idea of, mm. and the costs and benefits, so. In this instance, Craig and Fiona say they've got 450K in managed funds and shares, as well as 300K in cash, which seems high to me. Um, would you suggest that they make non-concessional contributions of that 450 or like this is a general stroke, I guess? I mean, given their Craig 62 retiring, uh, one, assuming they don't have any major, you know, expenses or unexpected things coming up, you always want to keep a reasonable cash buffer and you need to be wary of preservation. So you have to meet certain age and other requirements to access your super completely. I think, off, oh, I don't have a date of birth, but I'd say it'd be 60 that Fiona would have to be before she can access her super, whereas Craig mm. would probably be able to access it if he retired. Um, so balancing that, would you, we'd generally say, yeah, it could be used the maximum each year in the three years to your retirement. Yep. If that makes okay. sense. But generally you, yep. you want to have as much as you can into super before and, and during retirement. The, the low hanging fruit is pay off your mortgage. They should just pay off their mortgage with their cash, right? So they have cash and a mortgage. So that makes sense to me to pay it off and then think about maximizing their superannuation. Um, but, but, but acknowledge the, the things that Drew talked about, you know, access. Um, mm. So Jamie, could they could they keep their mortgages and use it as a line of credit to invest or anything like that, or is it not really appropriate for them? Yeah, uh, we 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 do often tell clients to pay off their mortgage, but leave the mortgage with the bank, with the ability to draw. Once you get to that, you know, once you're retired, um, then the bank sees you as a totally different person. So it's harder to get a line of credit. Uh, it's harder to borrow against a, a, a property, especially if you need it for cash flow purposes or if you need to help your children or whatever. Um, if the cost of holding the mortgage is relatively small and there's no line fee, then it could be a good idea to hold it. They definitely wouldn't borrow to invest um, with the level of capital that they want measured by what outcome they're after, you know, they're pretty close. So why would you want to do that? It's not like they're doing a catch up strategy or, you know, there's no real need to do it. Um, but just that contingency, just in case you might just leave it there. That's available. Mm -hmm. uh, Drew, if, if uh, I'm just going to use this, like a, this is an example, it doesn't necessarily apply to these two, but if they were a high risk couple, what kind of, allocations would you, you guys have in terms of like risky assets versus you know conservative assets or defensive assets and all that? Yeah, so the, the highest risk I'd Jen just putting it out there would be something like 10%, very little in low risk investments like cash, um, and 90% in everything, equities, property, <clears throat> anything we, we consider assets being risk or no risk or would you or consider no their risk. would you consider their primary residence as an asset in that calculation? Okay, so it's like a lifestyle asset. Yeah, we're more looking at the investable assets and, and how they should be allocated because they're the ones generating the income. I think in the discussion, you'd consider their, their total 
value of their assets because they may downsize, they may upsize at some point as well. So knowing what their total worth is can give people comfort as well. If you know, if you know, you you got three point whatever three point one million dollars of assets, sounds better than two point two in in just investable. So um, I'd say you know most the only people that come off as a ten ninety or a high growth or high risk. I'm probably me and you probably aren't even there. We <laughs> we know too much about markets to be ten ninety. Um, but you generally, yeah. The first thing you'd say is you'd have a discussion about are you really comfortable with the level of you know historic drawdowns from a high risk portfolio? This are you comfortable with that compared to the alternatives? Um, and I'd say it'd be much more closer to a balanced or balanced growth. They all sound very similar. Um, what would balanced. that be in terms of allocations? So typically we view a balanced as being 50-50, you know, balance <laughs> yeah. between low risk and risk assets. Uh, uh, you're probably sitting halfway between those, I think, for this sort of couple where, you know, they they do need both growth and income. Um, and that's, you know, don't set the risk profile without giving consideration to what sort of returns and, and they actually will need over the next 30 years. Mm. Yeah, so the kind of the risk profiles feed into the asset allocations. This is really generic, Owen, but you know, yeah. essentially 50-50, um, 30-70, um, are the three asset allocations that would be, or risk profiles that feed into asset allocations that would be considered for a client like this. They're probably a 30-70, in low risk assets. Um, and 70% in growth assets, just mm. generically what we would recommend. Do you ever come across, just as a kind of left field question, do you ever come across people that have like really, really, really conservative to the point of it's kind of crazy that they ended up, you know, they're at this age and they're so conservative. Um, do you ever come across those clients? Quite a few. Oh, we come across all sorts. <laughs> so, like, you know, and so ones like that don't understand how 80, aggressive they are as well. 80-20 in the opposite direction. So like 20-80. Yeah. Like do, you, do you come across that kind of stuff? We come across barbell, kind of this barbell strategy a lot where people have lots of low risk so. like cash and term <laughs> deposits and nothing in like property and equities and then just a whole heap in big risk stuff, you know? Biotechs private biotech startups and then they like that which is an interesting kind of concept to think you don't need the stuff in the middle you take all your risk here and your securities there um it's changed though Owen. you know the risk-free rate being half a percent term deposits paying you nothing has changed from just uh 10 years ago i wrote an article in 2010 on a 50 50 and half of the portfolio was in term deposits rolling over five years and uh that portfolio that half of your portfolio was earning 6.25 percent right that's 10 years ago so you're pretty comfortable holding half your portfolio earning 6.25 you know um where now what would you earn drew you wouldn't earn half a percent would you on a five-year rolling term deposit portfolio. So, you know, people have had to take more risk. They've had to say, okay, how do I take more risk? Now there's a, there's, it's, it's another thing that is facing lots of investors that are retiring today is how do you get that 30% into risk-free assets? You know, cash and term deposits don't pay much. Then you have to take some credit. What type of credit? Do you move up to mortgage trust? Do you more do direct lending? You know, does that, essentially all come unstuck like it has previously at some point 
So yeah, there, there's lots of issues in portfolio builds at the moment. Um, we kind of take the starting point of, can you put it all in a term deposit and live off the income without, with confidence that it'll still be there at the end? And the, the answer at the moment is no. No, if we could get term deposits at six or seven, then we'd put all, all of our clients' money in there. Um, mm. But now it's 0.5. So you have to take, as Jamie's saying, incremental risk and, and try and balance that towards both goals. Hey, actually, rem rem speaking of returns, it reminded me of a question which we spoke about briefly off air. Jamie, which is uh, Fiona's super fund has returned 5.4% over 10 years and Craig's has returned 6.6%. One of the questions my in-laws had was like, what's a good return from a super fund over 10 years? Like a, a balanced fund. Are you asking me that, Owen? Yeah, can yeah, I, I'm asking can you. I, can, I, can I defer? And you to defer to me? Yeah, 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 Drew. <laughs> I mean, there's a, f a few benchmarks around. The, there's a bit of an issue in all of the superannuation industry, us industry funds everywhere, that everything's named differently. So a balanced fund here could be an aggressive fund over here. You know, yeah. won't name names, but a lot of the a lot of balanced funds have 90%, as we we're saying, in it, like an aggressive strategy. Um, so understanding what your asset allocation is and what to compare with um, is is the first part. I have I just looking at that, a balanced portfolio, you probably so Morningstar is the research group we use that has an average return, uh, as well as Chant West, which is, I think, broadly accessible. They're sitting around 7 to 8%, I think, over the last 10 years, or 65 to 7.5% um, would be the average, whereas, you know, most of the reported things are like 9 or 10%. And it's important to, like, every superannuation strategy has to have an objective return, so that's probably more important to consider. The objective return of a 3070 balanced is something like CPI, so inflation plus three and a half to four percent. And if you think three and a half or four percent, and you've got six and a half percent, that's two and a half percent inflation if if it existed. Um, mm. So they're really in line with objective at the moment. If that mm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Jamie, I'll give you one. I know you've thought about a bit, which is. Um, when you sit down with clients, do you go over the ESG factors? So, you know, air quotes, ethical investing, but just even, you know, the environmental, social and governance frameworks with them and what they care about. Is that something that's increasingly playing a role in conversation? Sure. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's relatively new in the client advisor relationship. Now, we'll say we've been doing it for 20 years, but most people we've come across over that period, if you offer them a capitalistic outcome in expense of the environment, they typically will take it. Um, yeah. So, and, and and I've seen it in the institutional world too, where ESG has grown quite quite rapidly, and it seems to be now a part of most good fund managers' process and 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 and, and corporate. Um, so clients will come in, ESG is so personal though, um, of what people believe in, you know, is it, if you think about just the concept of ESG, it's environmental, which can be so many subsets, it's social, again, subsets, and then governance, which all good businesses should have great governance. So the easy bit is exclusions, you know, I don't want to invest in tobacco, I don't want to invest in nuclear, I don't want to invest in, they're easy. Uh, and then you get into the positive screens, doing 
doing good for the economy, uh, sorry, the, the environment. They're harder. So everyone is rushing to be green. Every fund manager is rushing to be green. How does that transcend into the underlying clients? We're seeing a bit of demand. We would say that we're at the forefront of building portfolios that are, that do consider ESG. Um, but uh, it, it comes down to the individual, you know, yeah. and, and and what they want and what they want to achieve. Mm. Mm. We're, we're, we're a member of the RIA, which is the Responsible Investment Association, which has a pretty good tool that talks about the positive and negative screens and assesses a lot of managers as well. Um, but it's a big part of conversation. So every one of these initial meetings, we'd, we'd include the... Um, consideration of ethical a good way to explain it owen is that uh, three years ago we we had the clients would come to us and want esg so we'd have an esg portfolio and some clients would come to us and didn't have any esg issues so they would have another portfolio where we don't hold that anymore we kind of have one belief in terms of what portfolios should look like and that mm. encompasses everything esg right when we go through due diligence with the with with fund managers there's a big ESG question. Um, what's your beliefs? What memberships do you have? How do you execute it? Is it true to label? And our model is now greener, if you want to use the word greener than it was, and it will continue to get more and more green um, in its approach. Are you guys, was it, are you guys a B Corp? Yeah, one of only a few companies that are B Corp and we've been B Corp for a long time. Um, B Corp is a movement that started before this real ASG green push. Uh, essentially it's a group of companies started out of the US, but a group of companies that believe there's more, the, the company should have objectives that are just not financial. So there should be, you know, um, community based and environmental based as well. So every three years we go through uh, recertification. Um, it means, you know, we've got a commitment um, to what could be loosely described as, uh, you know, a platform for ESG, so. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, I've heard it's the audit process is pretty intense uh, to become it's a intense, people. yeah. Yeah. So that's, so that's that's good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so just in summary with these guys, uh, Craig and Fiona, were there any kind of key risks? You know, we've only touched scratch the surface of them here, but um, were there any key risks that you guys pulled out of it? Anything else you want to add? Uh, I mean, you, you go, Drew. So the big, I mean, the big one was what I almost said at the start was making sure their income expectations meet what they're doing at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. and that risk profile and matching that particularly to the professions as well. So kind of high, anytime there's high risk, it, you have to really game the questionnaires that we provide to get to that level. So um, yeah, just delving more into that. But I think what we'd say to them is they're in an incredibly strong position. Uh, the big, big thing is going to be minimizing mistakes over the next 10, 15, 20 years, whatever they happen to be. That's 100% right. You know, what advisors aren't recognised for doing, which we do a lot, is stopping clients from making a mistake, you know, and mistakes are costly. Wrong asset allocation, wrong investments, gearing at an inappropriate time. So, you know, the value of an advisor should easily be measured by the money they save you from stopping you making mistakes. And we've been through the process um, so many times in a life cycle so many times. It's not funny. You know, we've seen 
estate planning, which we haven't covered here, but it's something we should cover off on and, and we would cover off on in an initial meeting, is you know, we've seen estate plans that have been um, created, um, executed <laughs> or implemented, right? So passing away of a partner and what does that mean and how there's a lot of concern for we've been so the founder of our business austin donnelly he founded the australian investors association which is a group of investors essentially trying to help other investors become better investors right we've always been associated with that drew and i for for, for 20 plus years um and it is a lot of those people that have got to retirement and they want to use investing as their hobby so they join Australian Investors Association, they all they talk about is invest, investing, typically male dominated. And what happens in their seventies is that they realize that they've learned what they need to learn. That's their hobby. But what happens when that key decision maker, them passes away. So in a lot of circumstances, we're the advisor that will get appointed on them passing away. But this plus last 30 years of your life is really difficult, right? Because it's not just like, you're going to get unwell. You're going to have concerns. There's going to be family issues. You're going to have potentially draws on your capital for various reasons. And it's something that all we do, right? So we've seen most cases before. Um, problem children and grandchildren, you know, we're nearly experts in them because most families have, you know, a special situation in their family that needs to be cared for either through the will or special trusts or, you know, needs to be handled from, from a family meetings perspective. So, you know, that's, that, by buying an expert, that's what you're doing by coming to us or some other group, then that's that we've seen it before. Um, yeah, makes sense. So on that, then how do, how do people find you guys if they want to, start this conversation it's the best place for them to go uh, we've got a website yeah waterpartners.com.au if you're yeah. interested you can there's a there, there's a part in there you can put your details and email it'll email to drew or i and you can email us directly jamie or drew at waterpartners.com.au um yeah i'll put more links than in the show too. <clears throat> yeah i think okay, we, cool. i just sort of the daily update for yeah Rust every day you can yeah, every day. Drew's up early yeah, in the morning. Box. That's you a can, great uh, read too. I don't do it, but I enjoy it, Drew. Before the top <laughs> I've been trying to cancel it forever. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to do anything else. You just read his update. He's done it for you. So, yeah, great. Wonderful, guys. I really appreciate your time. And um, I think this will resonate with a lot of our listeners who are, maybe even if they're not this far along, if they're still just thinking of retirement and seeing an advisor, um, or even if they're in retirement, there's a lot of value from this. So, Next time I'll give you one a bit more challenging. Yeah, that's it. We can do it every every six months or every quarter and we'll just change the circumstances. So people might get more out of that. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Thanks guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks for having us.